Welcome back to Sanctifying Story on the Life Given Radio with Ryan Ayers. This is episode 11, October 18th, and this week we are very, very briefly walking through John Steinbeck's East of Eden. Introduction East of Eden is a very strange book. It is not an allegory, nor a fantasy, nor a romance novel, nor a mystery. It has hardly any plot. There are plenty of antagonists, but no clear protagonist. The book even features a chapter that recounts several characters of Bible study on a passage in Genesis. In his introduction to East of Eden, the author John Steinbeck wrote that this book is a box. Nearly everything I have is in it, and it is not full. Pain and excitement are in it, and feeling good or bad and evil thoughts and good thoughts, the pleasure of design and some despair, and the indescribable joy of creation. So the book does not really fit anywhere because it has a little bit of everything. It is a container for Steinbeck's creation and greatest thoughts. But for all its variety of content, the book is not purposeless. On the contrary, this book as a defined thesis on the human race's guilt and how we are redeemed. Section 1. A List of Characters The majority of the plot hinges on Adam Trask's relationship with various members of his family. Adam's brother Charles vies for their father's affection, which is awarded to Adam alone. Destitute of his father's love, Charles becomes a vicious, cunning, and miserly man. Adam's sons Cal and Aaron are twins, but are more akin to Adam and Charles than they are to each other. Aaron is loved by everyone and is slow and stubborn-minded. Cal is disliked on account of his face, is sly-witted, and enjoys exploiting others' weaknesses. Adam's wife is a curious character. She is described simply as a monster, lacking the spiritual equivalent of an arm or both eyes. She spends her life in prostitution, attempting to turn other people into monsters as deformed and wicked as herself. Samuel Hamilton is the virtuous man, giving laughter and wisdom to his family and to Adam. Adam's servant is a Chinese man named Lee, who is prolific, self-sacrificial, and a complete devotee to truth. He delivers the book's thesis, which we'll get to in Jiffy. Section 2. Cain's and Abel's Since the book is a menagerie of seemingly unrelated stories, ascertaining the book's direction requires looking at the book's prolific use of biblical imagery. East of Eden is already a striking title, but then Adam Trask decides to create his own Eden for his new wife. In Adam's Eden, his wife betrays Adam and tries to kill him which should sound like the she-devil of Jewish fanfiction, Adam's first wife, Lilith. Samuel Hamilton is from Ireland and sets himself up in a green new land and immediately begins digging for wells, which reminds one of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, foreigners digging their wells in the fruitful land of Canaan. Samuel's youngest son is Joseph, who is the beloved of the family, which echoes the beginning of the story of the Joseph in Genesis. Looking at the book's biblical imagery reveals a system to the menagerie of stories. The stories that are central to the plot, 
The stories that all the other smaller stories complement are the stories that are reiterations of Cain and Abel. Adam and his brother both tried to win their father's affection. As Abel's gift is received, so Adam's is. As Cain's gift is not received, so brother Charles' gift is rejected. Abel and Cain later walk in the field talking together, just as Charles walks with Adam late at night. Cain and Charles become enraged at their brothers and try to kill them. Charles later receives a mark, which looks like a long finger mark laid on his forehead, page 47, mimicking God's mark upon Cain after killing Abel. Adam, Adam's relationship with his brother takes up much of the book, and his brother's relationship is defined by Charles' attempt to kill him. Later, Adam's sons embody the Cain and Abel story again. Aaron, the beloved son, gives his father the gift of pride in his college accomplishments. Cal gives his father $15,000, an arguably much greater gift, but it is not accepted by his father. When Adam's son, Aaron, is missing for a couple days, Cal replies, Am I supposed to look after him? Page 563. Which should make us immediately think of Cain's famous retort, Am I my brother's keeper? Genesis 4.9. This interaction between Cal, Aaron, and Adam presents the major conflict of the book. If you're fishing around for the direction the story is moving, or why the characters are doing what they're doing, reread Genesis and especially Cain and Abel's account. Section 3. Tim Shell. I believe the thesis of the book is located in chapter 24, simply because it not only makes the most sense of Steinbeck's curious box, but it is also echoed in the final point he makes in the book. Chapter 24 features a Bible study between the book's big three characters. Lee, the educated philosopher, Adam, the mostly protagonist, and Samuel Hamilton, the virtuous. After Adam's Lilith of a wife left him, Adam died. His body breathed and ate and slept, but his mind and soul were dead. Now and again his mind fought its way upward, and when the light broke in, it brought him only a sickness of the mind, and he retired into the grayness again. Page 250. Samuel brings Adam out of his deep sleep and then commands him to name his children, whom he has treated like animals and forgotten to even name them. This, by the way, should sound like the Adam's death-like sleep and consequent naming of his family. During this great naming event, the story of Cain and Abel is brought up. Samuel solemnly declares, two stories have haunted us and followed us from our beginning. The story of original sin and the story of Cain and Abel, page 264. True enough, but Lee ups the stakes. I think this is the best-known story in the world because it is everybody's story. I think it is the simple story of the human soul. The greatest fear a child can have is that he is not loved, and rejection is the hell he fears. I think everyone in the world, to a large or small extent, has felt rejection, and with the rejection comes anger, and with anger some kind of crime and revenge for the rejection, and with the crime, guilt. And there is the story of mankind. Page 268. Among man's strongest motivations, then, resides the spiraling pattern of real or imaginary rejection, anger, vile acts done in anger, and then guilt, resulting in more rejection and more anger, and round and round the vicious cycle goes. So then, what can mankind do with this guilt? Steinbeck reveals another layer of the story. God tells Cain before the murder that thou should rule over sin, Genesis 4-7. In 
In a later chapter, Lee presents the results of his 10-year-long translational study of Kane's story. The American Standard Translation, Thou Should, orders men to triumph over sin, and you, can, and you can call sin ignorance. The King James makes a promise in Thou Shalt, meaning, meaning that men will surely triumph over sin. But the Hebrew word, the word Timshel, Thou Mayest, that gives a choice. That throws it right back on man. Now, there are millions in churches and sects who hear Do Thou and throw themselves into obedience. And there are millions more who feel predestination in Thou Shalt. Nothing they do can interfere with what will be. But Thou Mayest. Why, that makes a man great. That gives him stature with the gods, for in his weakness and his filth and his murder of his brother he is still the great choice. He can choose his course and fight it through and win. Page 302. Here is the assertion of the book, that to be human is to be chocked full of guilt and shame and evil actions. Here is the great hope of the book, that we can be free from our weakness, sin, and guilt. And here is Lee's thesis for how we achieve this hope. We, ourselves, by our own might, are able to make ourselves better, to fight it through and win over sin. Let's see if the rest of the book confirms his theory. Section 4. Guilt Applied I mentioned earlier that Adam's sons Cal and Aaron begin embodying the Cain and Abel story, like their father and their father's brother. Remember too that Cal has a natural meanness in him. After Adam's rejection of Cal's offering, Cal and Aaron walk out late at night together. When Aaron disappears after that night and people start asking Cal questions, Cal gives Cain's reply, Am I supposed to look after him? Page 563. Cal even admits he can't stop being like his mother because I've got her in me. Page 445. At Cal's lowest point, the night that Cal and Aaron walked together, Cal did not murder his brother, but he did maliciously provoke his brother, and Aaron, because of Cal's provoking, ran off and swore into the military. However, unlike Cain, Cal feels the burden of his guilt and repents. Lee rebukes Cal telling him, you are marveling at the tragic spectacle of Caleb Trask, Caleb the Magnificent, the Unique, Caleb whose suffering should have its Homer. Did you ever think of yourself as a snot-nosed kid, mean sometimes, incredibly generous sometimes? Page 568. Lee's medicine works, and Cal looks at him with just the beginning of relief. Page 568. Cal repents and fights his shame. He begins to genuinely love a wise woman named Abra, but they, too, deal with guilt. Near the end of the book, Abra interprets Cal's sullenness. You think you've got it all, don't you? You think you attract bad things. Well, well, I'm going to tell you something. My father is in trouble. Page 590. Abra's father, it turns out, was stealing money from his company. Her mother simply pretends it isn't happening. You see, you're not the only one. He looked sideways at his face. Now I'm afraid, she said weakly. Page 590. Abra and Cal both are in a line of generational unfaithfulness. Both are, in Samuel Hamilton's words, Cain's children. Page 268. Section 5. Redemption. Aaron soon dies in the military and dies because Cal indirectly provoked him into the military. When Adam is told of Aaron's death, Adam lies stricken in bed. 
Think of Jacob stating, if his sons take his beloved Benjamin away, Jacob's other sons will bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Genesis 42-38 Cal walks out of Adam's room stating, I killed my brother. I'm a murderer. He knows it. Page 595 Okay, there's the guilt. But Lee, Cal, and Abra enter the room together and approach Adam on his bed, seeking for a blessing for Cal. Again, think of Joseph approaching Jacob on his bed, looking for a blessing. Lee makes this ultimatum. He, Cal, did a thing in anger, Adam, because he thought you had rejected him. The result is that his brother and your son is dead. Adam, give him your blessing. Don't leave him alone with his guilt. Give him his chance. Let him be free. That's all a man has over the beasts. Free him. Bless him. Adam looked up with sick weariness, cries, and fails to speak. Then his lungs filled. He expelled the air and lips combed the rushing sigh. His whispered words seemed to hang in the air. Tim Shell. His eyes closed and he slept. Page 601. Section 6. Bondage of the Will So far, the book seems to confirm Lee's thesis back in his translational study. You have the ability to be either a saint or a devil, and which one you are is entirely up to you. Never mind about gods, just make the choice yourself. Except for the fact that Cal has been trying to be good since childhood, but does evil anyway. After his treachery to Aaron, Cal states, Why, I'm mean, Lee. I don't want to be mean. Help me, Lee. Page 567. After hearing his mother died, Cal snarls, I hope it hurt. No, I don't want to say that. I don't want to think that. There it is again. There it is. I don't want it like that. Page 567. Young Cal prays the same thing to God with tears in his eyes. Dear Lord, don't make me mean. Page 377. Yet Cal continues to be mean anyway. Nor does Cal do the right thing on his own. After Aaron is dead and his father is paralyzed, Cal is ready to run from home. It takes Lee and Abra's wills, wills to turn him around to confront his father. So rather than attaining righteousness by his own might, Cal is more like Paul in his letter to the Romans. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. For what I hate, that I do. Romans 7, 15-16 Now, remember the thesis proposed, we all live under a cycle of guilt because we feel rejected and not loved. Adam's family history shows that well enough. Lee's original thesis then proposes we choose to be free of guilt. Tim Shell, or thou mayest, that throws it right back on man. For if thou mayest, then thou mayest not. Page 300. Cal shows, however, that doesn't work very well. Cal still has his mother's blood, he is still guilty, and he is still mean. So Lee's thesis needs amending. Conclusion It is on the second to last page that Lee has a su suggestion, a suggestion that I think amends his original thesis and therefore changes the outlook of the whole preceding book. I thought that once an angry and disgusted god poured molten fire from a crucible to destroy or to purify his little handiwork of mud. I thought I had inherited, inherited both the scars of the fire and impurities which made the fire necessary. All inherited, I thought. That isn't good enough. Maybe you'll come to know that every man and every generation is refired. 
Did the craftsman, even in his old age, lose hunger to make a perfect cup, thin, strong, translucent? Lee held his cup up to the light. All impurities burned out and ready for a more glorious flux, and for that, more fire. And then either the slag heap, or perhaps what no one in the world ever quite gives up, perfection. Cal, listen to me. Can you think that whatever made us would stop trying? Page 598 and 599. In this paragraph, Lee has added God into the center of his original thesis. In this paragraph, God's action is the focus, not man's. Man is not master of his destiny, as Lee originally proposed, but clay in the hands of the almighty potter. This starts to sound like definition number two of Tim Shell, that will, where we simply will be perfected no matter what we do. But this paragraph can't be advocating for thou will, because Lee, a page later, tells Adam to bless his son, to let him be free, as all a man has over the beasts. Page 588. How could Lee value fatalism? One page, and the very next page value Cal's freedom. So if not fatalism, could it be the first definition of Tim Show, thou shalt? It could. But Lee doesn't mention it, doesn't mention that option, and never really gives that option much thought. So I think, in this paragraph, we are still dealing with the third definition of Tim Show, Thou mayest. Man chooses between good and evil, and thus bears responsibility for his choices and is above the animals. But, having established man's moral choice, he then couples man's moral choice with God's design in everything. According to Lee, God, the master craftsman, wouldn't lose interest in his creation. Even in old age, human craftsmen do not lose hunger to make a perfect cup, nor does any human in the world quite give up their potential for perfection. Therefore, Lee says, God the master craftsman is not an angry and disgusted God, arbitrarily extracting pain from his impure creation. Rather, God is a master craftsman. Lee proposes God is using the fire, pain, suffering, evil, to some end, some purpose he has envisioned for his pottery. And what could God's end goal for humanity be but what we all cannot quite give up? Perfection. Freedom. And so Lee recognizes man's responsibility for his own choices and simultaneously recognizes God's authorship of this entire story and all the characters and all the plot. And when Lee finishes this thought and Lee presents Cal to Adam, the final layer to his thesis is added. How God begins to mold his clay men and women into the kind of pottery that will choose good, the kind of pottery that is free from guilt, and the kind of pottery that is perfected from sin, is revealed through Adam's thou mayest. Freedom from the guilt cycle comes through our Father's forgiveness of us. Freedom from sin comes through his Son's redemption. Footnote 1. It seems to me that Lee is arguing man is free to choose right from wrong, and also that God is writing the whole story. If that sounds like the beginnings of Calvinism to you, it certainly does to me. If you want more resources on God's sovereignty and man's free will, I'd highly recommend Doug Wilson's talk, Calvinism 4.0, God as a Good Author. End of footnote 1. Footnote 2. There is an alternative expl explanation to Adam's Tim Cho. 
namely that Adam's Tim Show means all three versions of Tim Show. This is an extremely attractive option to me. However, I simply cannot get what Lee says a few par paragraphs earlier to mean all three versions of Tim Show. Lee seems stubbornly to fixate on Baumeist, so I have left this alternative explanation in the footnotes. This concludes episode 11 of Sanctifying Story. Give us five stars on Apple or Google Podcasts, and give us a follow wherever you listen to the Life Given Radio. Or join the Life Given Radio conversation group on Facebook to become more involved in the Life Given Radio. Until next time, read East of Eden and try looking for biblical imagery and looking for how Adam Trask's family line behaves through all three generations. Also, give a listen to Doug Wilson's Calvinism 4.0, God is a Good Author, and check out Steinbeck's many other works. Keep on reading, and thanks for listening to Sanctifying Story.